Podcast 012, Helen Atow on Soil, Conifers, and Fukuoka. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. All right, so Helen... Uh, uh, I'm, I, we're here today, so this is my my podcast number. I don't care, and uh, <laughs> I don't like I don't care what the number is. It's, it's, been, it. a, it's been a few. I think it might be twelve. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I'm here with Helen Atow, um, and goddess of the soil, and and she hates it and loves it when I say that. <laughs> and and um, uh, uh, Hel- so Helen, you, you've got some. So I know that you were the uh, Missoula County uh, Horticultural Extension Agent from 1995 to 2010. Yes. And and um, you, you are bonkers about soil. Yes. Okay. And, and and we've just spent the last three hours arguing about I don't know 47 different things about soil. <laughs> Is that about accurate? That sounds accurate it, to me. It sounds about right. Okay. Um, and and so uh, we, we I tried to make a list of the things that we could talk about during a podcast. And, and the first three things I suggested, uh, you, you said, no, let's do those later because I'm going to be doing more research on that over the next couple of weeks. So, <laughs> okay, so we've got a future podcast to do. And, and uh, one of those, uh, so just, just a quick summary of those topics. One, one was um, uh, soil pH and conifers. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, it, and that started off with uh, I uh, have projected many times um, that, uh, uh, soil that that conifers cause soil to be uh, to have an acidic pH, so and typically uh, a pH of about 4.5, um, uh, which is very acidic, extremely acidic. And then uh, two weeks ago, you um, uh, had uh, um, several cases where you had pine needles in water and and uh, in distilled water. And you measured the pH, and you were showing a pH that was roughly neutral, yes. ab- about seven, and uh, and those were green needles, mm-hmm. and and then and then you then said something to the effect of uh, pine needles do not lower uh, soil pH. If you add pine needles as a mulch to your soil, they will not end up with an they will not end up with an acidic response in the soil. Basically, they they have a, a no response. Now, leaf mulch, the the decomposing, uh, smells like a good forest soil kind of detritus underneath underneath trees. That will give you a slightly acidic reaction if you add that. But basically, pine needles, when added to the soil as either a mulch or uh, tilled in aren't necessarily going to lower the pH of the soil. Okay, so that that was that was the thing that that you um uh put put forth and and then and then uh so so um I then came came forward and 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 put put together several ideas on how to um uh, uh beat your concept up with a hammer and and that I'm right and you're wrong um and 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 and, and frankly I have to say that because you are taking a stand against this I, I have to put. I'm, I'm putting doubts on my own position on it, but at this point, after all this argument, I still think that there's a good 80% chance that I'm right, <laughs> and and that 
and that there's a causality that the, that the, um, that the conifer trees cause the soil to become acidic. Now, now we both agree that, that there is an allelopathic effect, that, that there are allelopathic agents uh, with uh, four specifically uh, uh, that I'm aware of in in conifer trees and, in, in and the six in, yeah. in yeah in the needles and and I I think it's also in the bark I'm not sure if it's in the wood um, uh, but and then the also the thing is your tests show that the bark does cause an acidic pH well in in my container studies where where we actually put uh, Put bark into uh, containers and and with some soil and grew them. We we were able to see a, a slightly reduced pH and the bark itself. When you measure composted wood bark, it has a low pH, running right about five to to six. The needles don't. When you when you look at the needles, they don't have a low pH. And when you look at them in a laboratory environment, mm -hmm. in you know, outside of soil. So, so I also have to say that in, in studying this a little bit, other people have looked at long-term addition of, of composted wood bark to the soil and not seen an, an acidic response over time. Uh, that, that wasn't what we saw in small container plantings. We definitely saw a decrease in soil pH in a contained situation. So. The, the key is, and, and then to wrap up about allelopathy in conifers, that, that there are at least four allelopathic agents in all conifers, and there are at least six in um, uh, uh, cedars. And, and so, but we agree about those allelopathic agents, and you were even telling me something that I didn't know, and that was that these allelopathic agents um, are also toxic to insects. Uh, probably, we should probably say most insects and most... Uh, well, they're, they're anti-feedants, so they, they keep insects from eating conifer needles and, and doing very well on them. So there's only, only a, a smaller number of insects that have adapted to eating insect, or eating the pine needles because they've evolved enzymes in their insect guts that allow them to, to utilize these, these phenolic compounds, for example. Right. Right. Okay. So that's the topic that we're going to not talk about today. Oh, great. Because you said you said we have to wait because now you started like Googling like crazy and looking up all kinds of studies and then you said you're going to go read all of these and then we'll talk about it in more depth. But, but I did want to kind of give a quick little summary. Well, the complexity I think is, is what we need to look at. So, so needles, there seems to be a real good amount of evidence that if you add needles to your garden, you're not going to change the pH. But what that doesn't get at is if a conifer is growing, if you have a grassland, if you have a pasture, and you mow it down and you plant conifers, over time, will the growth of the conifers, the growth of the pine trees, for example, change the pH of the soil? And I'm thinking that from some of the studies I saw, it looks like, yes, growing conifers in a grassland that you've gone from grass to to uh, a forest will slowly over time 20 to 50 years lower the pH so one study I I just read it looked like uh, after 50 years you could have a decrease in the pH of one unit so you could go from from uh, uh, 5.5 or I think they went from 6.5 down to 5.5 in 50 years so very slow, 
but a decrease in pH with the growing conifer. So what's going on there? Well, now, of course, if you say one unit, then we're talking about an inverted logarithmic scale. So really we're talking about you've increased the amount of parts hydrogen, which is what the pH is, right. by a factor of 10. Correct. So there's, there's 10 times more. So, um, Over uh, and a very long period of time, however. 50 years is, is longer true. than the average gardener is going to take to, to change their... Tool. Right. And, and it's possible that it could have more to do with the roots than with the duff. That's what it's looking is, uh, like. Yeah, yeah. The soil chemistry. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm still of the camp. Of that it has a lot to do with the duff, primarily the needles. And, and, and your analysis so far has shown that, it's, that, that, that the needles have a neutral pH, um, and that's, a, that's an, of course, in a laboratory environment, in a laboratory container, distilled water. And, I, and I'm thinking, and then granted, you found a study that seemed to indicate that it didn't have much change in the short term. In, in, in soil. In soil. Mm -hmm. and, and, I'm, and I'm thinking that, okay, I could see that as a possibility because of the, the waxy coating and, and other elements that, that help to maintain the needle's integrity in the soil. They don't decompose very fast. Yeah, they it? decompose very fast. So yeah. I'm thinking that in the longer term decomposition, it, it, that, it, that could be when it takes effect. So we have people that are going out there putting needles on their plants and stuff uh, in order to try and like you know help blueberries for example not a good love idea love an acidic soil and it, yeah. yeah it doesn't seem like it's going to be enough plus the the needles themselves are going to contain all that allelopathic stuff although blueberries um, which uh, you know some might say are the same as huckleberries um, that's I, my impression is is that they do tolerate the allelopathic agents from conifers. So, you know, it, maybe it is a good thing to do. That I don't because know the of answer that. to. Because of that. Well, you know, and so around here in Montana, you'll see a lot of uh, huckleberries, um, you know, grow under, and maybe grow under uh, conifers. But, you know, that's another quick little thing is that it was in uh, your master gardener class 15 years ago that you brought in a blueberry expert, and, and he told us that blueberries were the same as Montana huckleberries. But um, um, I've heard so many people say that, oh, that, and he said that people would say that is not true because, of course, you know, huckleberries are special and lovely and, 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 and it's the, uh, one of the awesome things about Montana, so it can't well, be... Well, they're not the same. They're mm -hmm. the, the same genus, but they're not the same species. Okay. Oh, and, and so the, the end? The end. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> all right. So... Uh, um, the other thing that we're going to not talk about today <laughs> is, is till versus no-till versus minimum till. Um, ah, but we'll get to that. But we, we, we'll do, have, that we do have a subset of that that we're going to be talking about. And, um, uh, and we're going to, so later, a little bit later, we're going to talk about Fukuoka's techniques and, um, and, and how it's a, a strictly no-till system for his grains. It's a strictly no-till system mm -hmm. and, and how it's effective. But, but I thought it would be good to start off with um, for, for topics that we are going to talk about because so far everything we've talked about is what we're going to not talk about. Absolutely. And, and so we are, I, I, you know, it seems to me like a year ago I tried talking to you about permaculture and, 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 and your response a year ago seemed to be a little, um, uh, I don't know, maybe dismissive or at least perhaps more dismissive than now. Now it seems like um, you, you, you've uh, consumed the Kool-Aid, if you will, and, and, and you're in. And, and so you, you're, is, is my analysis accurate? 
Well, I think a lot of people will con- would consider what I was doing on my farm permaculture. I was planting a lot of uh, uh, native fruiting shrubs and trees, and uh, and I have an enormous orchard. But mostly what I was doing to make a living was selling annual vegetable crops and trying to perennialize them as much as possible by uh, doing minimum tillage and, in some cases, no tillage within the the vegetable production field. So some people would call that permaculture. Permaculture has a pretty broad... And a polyculture. You were were constantly doing polyculture-esque things. polyculture. but I was not doing, uh, until I sold the farm uh, recently, I was trying to make a living on it, and so I was trying for very high yields, and hence I was doing more of perennializing an annual system than than what I would consider permaculture, which is a, a much more ecologically diverse system. So now I was I was trying to uh, root out the part where it's like a year ago you weren't as big on the word permaculture and then and then now there was something that you witnessed a few months ago yes. and now you're like oh yeah permaculture is the stuff. Well, I actually have been really interested in forest gardening and and uh, agroforestry for years and years. I started out as an intern at the Land Institute in Salina. Kansas when I was in my 20s, and I really wanted to look at agroforestry and the exciting diversity at the forest edge where you have a meadow and a forest meeting, and uh, my teacher at the time, Wes Jackson, said, well, when people get serious about agriculture and food production, they grow grains. And so, uh, you know, he's right, actually. When people really want to raise food, they grow grains. It's a huge portion of our diet. So I went back to agriculture school and horticulture and studied that kind of agriculture for 25 years, but always was interested in, in woody plants and designing agroforestry systems and, and forest gardens. But then I was visiting in Panama, in January of uh, 2011, and I got to see the most spectacular example I've ever seen of a forest garden that was full of of fruits and leaves that were edible. And in fact, the fellow that was running this 60-acre farm, forest farm or forest garden, was eating almost entirely out of this forest system. And that made me think since that my since now my farm is sold that I want to go in that direction and spend more time with the plants that I've always grown and sold as woody specimens my native plants and and fruit trees but that I never actually got to design a, an entire system around and so I really I, I yes that is my next task in life <laughs> So and and it may happen in Montana. It may not. It sounds like you're. I'm looking for land somewhere in a warmer section along the coast. Okay. All right. So um um, what would be your uh, idea? What what is permaculture? Well, I think permanent culture permaculture first first and foremost is a permanent soil cover agriculture 
that all of the work that I've done over the last 25 years to minimize tillage, when you get to permaculture, most of the system, not all of the system, but the majority of the system is a permanent soil cover food production. And so that means that you have undisturbed, untilled soil that's never bare. And it can be covered by shrubs and trees and ground covers, or if you're doing grain production, you're not buying your grains off your land, so to speak, that your, your grain system is patterned in a Fukuoka-style grain production to mimic an ecosystem that looks like a prairie, where you have uh, grasses and, and forbs, flowers, and legumes uh, that all are intermingling together within this one system and intermingling their roots and are either perennialized or are perennials. West Jackson is, is trying to uh, develop, as is Washington State University, perennial grains that don't have to be tilled, that just keep producing year after year. So uh, now I'm going to pop on over to the uh, the only other topic we're going to talk about today, um, and and then all of the variations of that, and and that is um, uh, you spent some time, I believe it was a year and a half, on a farm that was uh, in Georgia, the USA, uh, that was uh, uh, using Fukuoka's techniques. And there's a there's a dude there that that had had. Really, uh, really mastered it, and and yeah. then to put a little frosting on that cake, he went and spent three weeks at Fukuoka's place. And um, so, so, so first of all, earlier today, I uh, we were talking about um, how I've I've the, the the permaculture folks are all powerful keen on Fukuoka's stuff. Mm. At the same time, I've never heard of anybody uh, saying that Fukuoka said, yeah, my stuff is permaculture. And so today you were saying something about why that is, which I thought was really fascinating. Why does Fukuoka not call his stuff permaculture? Well, I, I think just the very minimal time that, that I was around Fukuoka, but the longer time that I was around uh, Mikio, who ran our place in Georgia, that the main tenet of natural farming is that it's about spirit and about spirituality and about perceiving spirit most easily through the natural world so that it's not necessarily about techniques. And permaculture is very technical and based on ways of doing things and, and techniques both within the the green building and the, the food system and the water conservation. There's lots of techniques. Whereas Fukuoka, basically the instructions were uh, think less, talk less, watch nature more, and open yourself to the natural world and, and see what it teaches you. And that those lessons are going to be what feed you, literally, and and figuratively through your spirit and that it will make us better human beings as well as more evolved human beings. And I think permaculture doesn't uh, stress that spiritual aspect quite as strongly and uh, hence it's a little easier to, to write books about permaculture because you can talk about techniques. 
water conservation, energy conservation, agricultural ecology, all of that can fit into permaculture and to talk about what Fukuoka talked about, which was even beyond Buddhism in its focus on the natural world as a teacher, it's harder to talk about and write about that. True. I mean, I know that <clears throat> um, um, permaculture and, and Sepp Holzer, they, they all, all talk about observation. It's really about observation. And, uh, and I know that, that Holzer's works are very similar to Fukuoka's works. And I know that uh, whenever, I mean, first of all, Holzer's always saying you got to read from the book of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if he writes about it at all, but I know he's, he always told me that. And then, and then if you ever wanted, if you ever got to the point where it seems like the, either the translation wasn't working or maybe he, I, I always kind of thought he had a secret and he didn't want to tell me, <laughs> then, then he'd always do this little gesture and say, that's because you're not reading from the book of nature read the book of nature. It's there. It's open in front of you. You're not reading it. You must read. And I, and I kind of thought, you know, that's just a cheap excuse for not telling you that you got a secret. But, but yes. Uh, I always thought that, too. Uh, <laughs> over the year and a half that I worked with Mikio, he would let us go out in the field and struggle, and then he would show up a few hours later, and, uh, and uh, everything would work out. And he would just smile and say, you have to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear and basically pay attention, pay attention to the natural world. And I always assumed there were secrets, too, that he had learned somewhere. But uh, the older I get, the more I realize that it really is about being present, getting rid of all the other thoughts in your mind so that you really are open to what's going on in the natural world. And that includes all the science as well that that I know. So I try to balance all of the science that I've got and that I utilize still quite a bit with going out into the natural world and spending enough time there paying attention and observing that that uh, that what really is going on comes through. Although sure all of us will look at the natural world and force our ideas upon the natural world and then not hear what's going on. You know, and on that note, I think it's a perfect time. To <laughs> it's a perfect time to bring up what we were arguing about for 45 minutes before I turned the microphone on, <laughs> and 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 that was uh, a lot about. Um, and, you know, in fact, I think it'd be great to start with a summary of Fukuoka's rice system, and um, so maybe can can you? Because I, I, you know, I think. Uh, uh, there's so many things about it that are just like, a, a, even at a high level, um, that are just uh, amazing. And whenever anybody tells me that um, uh, if, if we were to switch over from conventional uh, ag systems to organic ag systems, that um, three-quarters of the world population would die, that's when I have to point out to them, you know, Fukuoka's techniques with rice and uh, as, as um, evidence, not proof, of being utterly proven, but but as evidence that that that's not true. Um, but anyway, what maybe maybe you could summarize what his system is. Yeah, I think that uh, first I want to say that uh, what was really the most exciting about the grain system to me is that it is a true polyculture, and that it most closely mimicked our our prairie lands, for example, our our gra- native grasslands where you you have a diversity of plants growing together and 
basically the, it's the it's the combination of plants growing together that that gives you your yield as opposed to just growing a monoculture of one plant, which is what all of our grain fields are. So what uh, what we did in Georgia and what Fukuoka did in Japan is to grow successions, to grow two crops per season within the same field so that your yields per acre were really, really high because you were getting two crops of plants. Your yield for each crop may not have been as high as in a monoculture, but you're getting two crops per acre per season. So the actual poundage of grain was very high. Now, wait, right there, i got to stop you. <clears throat> My understanding is, is that Fukuoka's rice crop alone was, I mean, the, the amount that he was harvesting per acre was in the top 5% for Japan. And that's just his rice without consideration for the barley. I don't know the answer to that. I thought it was the combination of both crops per, uh, on a per acre yield. Certainly for us, that's what, what the case was. So we had a rotation of, um, of a rice and wheat and corn and rye. And so we were growing four different kinds of grain, but two different successions in the same field per year. And basically what, what we had was a, a, a legume cover crop that uh, then we planted the grain into, and then um, the straw from the crop previously was put on as well. So you had a high carbon material with the straw, and you had a low carbon, high nitrogen material with the legume. In our case, it was hairy vetch, usually, and sometimes Dutch white clover, that would be added to the soil as the crop grew. So you had this regular and constant addition of a balanced organic matter residue, not just high carbon straw, which is what a lot of gardeners do. And uh, you have a, a deficiency of nitrogen in that case, usually. But uh, a combination of the two, and then the crop would grow, and the, the, the straw would mulch the clover and stress it a little bit, and then the clover would, uh, would eventually start growing faster, and the harvest, the, the crop would be harvested. The, let's, let's go through a full succession. So, for example, you'd plant your corn plants. So now you're talking about in Georgia. You're not yeah. talking about at Fukuoka's place. I'm, I'm talking about in Georgia. Uh, what, what we did is we'd, we'd make clay balls uh, with, with the corn seed, uh, which is to make balls of clay and put a seed of corn right inside them. And then they'd be planted into the, the, the legume. And in this case, it was uh, hairy vetch. And by planted, you mean just tossed onto the ground? Well, no. We, we made little trenches and kind of uh, put them in a little deeper than, than just tossing them on the ground. Right. We made a little bit of a trench. So we, we set the, the, uh, the straw or the the, uh, we moved the straw aside, the straw from the wheat in this case, the crop before the corn, or excuse me, the rye, the crop before the corn. We'd make a little trench through the legume and uh, put the corn balls, and then the, the straw and the legume would go back over them. And as I said, the, the straw from the rye would then be mulching and setting back the 
the uh, legume and uh, the corn would germinate and would start growing and about the time it was starting to put on some real height, then the legume would be coming up beyond where the straw had, uh, had mulched it back, the rice straw had mulched it back, and uh, would be just about starting to be a little more competitive. And then when we'd come in and harvest the corn, we'd set the, the legume back by walking on it and stomping on it and, and uh, um, mowing down the corn, and then we'd uh, take the corn back and, and use the seed part of it and take all of the, the residue, all of the leaves, all of the anything that we didn't, that wasn't actually the seed and put that back on the field. And then it would be time to plant the rye. So that's a brief, a brief summary. And the reason I think it's such an elegant system is that it, it basically mimics a couple of important ecological principles in a, in a grassland system, and that is the fact that different plants dominate at different times of the season. So at some point in the year, the legume is growing most assertively, and the grasses aren't growing as aggressively. And then at some time of the year, they're both growing aggressively. And at another time in the year, the, the grass is growing more aggressively than the legume. And at other times, there's a lot of, of high-carbon residue being, being added as the grass plants start to senesce and go into some kind of winter uh, dormancy. So the system that Fukuoka designed and that we copied from Fukuoka mimics what's happening in a natural grassland if you just pay attention. So what is Fukuoka's cycle? He had a similar cycle except that with the rice there was a period of a week or two weeks maybe where there was water added to the system to set the clover back a little bit. So we, we um, were able to set the legume back that we used by walking on it and um, mowing it a little bit when we harvested the grain and, uh, and also, also by mulching it with the, uh, with the straw. Uh, Fukuoka managed the clover, so to speak, so it didn't outcompete with the young rice seedlings or the young barley seedlings by, uh, uh, by the, the mulch, the straw mulch, the, the rice mulch uh, and, the, and the barley mulch. Uh, but with the rice, there was a, a period when, the, when it was young where there was a little bit of water, which, of course, the rice likes and the clover doesn't like. Okay. So... <clears throat> One of the things that we talked about in the 45 minutes before turning the microphone on was um, the, the stuff about how uh, some people believe that if you grow a legume, that you uh, cannot get the nitrogen from it for the other plants unless you till it in at the right time. And um, so, I, uh, so as, as part of our discussion, in that space, I, I came up with a way of, of being able to express, uh, a, a way of uh, being able to tell that uh, what can and cannot be done or what, you know. So, so while you and I disagree on a lot of these things, we did come to a lot of agreement in the end about um, uh, using this system. And so the thing I said was, it's like, okay, you have a legume, and we'll call it an annual legume. And, um, uh, the thing that, that, that I was saying is that it would put out 100 units of nitrogen, and these units, who cares what the units are? Um, 
and it's going to put out 100 units of, of nitrogen, and that um, uh, two units would be through exudates. And this would be that um, as the plant is living and thriving and growing, that it consumes a variety of different things, and at the same time, it exudes things into the soil um, and, uh, and into its surroundings. It exudes things outside of the plant itself. So I was saying a two out of the 100 units would, uh, of nitrogen would be exuded through the roots. Um, and then I said that um, uh, 25 units would come from the roots after the plant had died. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 whichever legume it is, whether it's a pea or a bean or whatever, as an annual, that at some point it's going to die. And that 25 units of the 100 units of nitrogen would um, uh, be in the form of the, the roots and the nodules and that kind of a thing when, when the plant dies. I then went on to say that 60 units would be lost to denitrification. So the top part of the plant would die and that 60 units of nitrogen would just simply go up into the atmosphere. And now how this applies to, to Fukuoka stuff is that um, you know, Fukuoka never tilled. At least he never tilled his rice. I don't think he ever tilled anything. But every once in a while, he, he would you know, uh, dig for one thing or another. But, but um, for, for, his, uh, uh, for, his, for his rice fields, his rice and barley fields, he never, he never tilled. And, um, and yet the soil got richer and richer every year. And, um, and, and really, the, the, the primary contributor to that was, was clover. Um, and it was, a, I imagine, a perennial clover. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, so, so we'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, I want to say, OK, I put out these numbers, two for exudates, 25 for dead roots, 60 units for denitrification. And whatever's left over uh, ends up in the soil through the decomposition of the top part of the plant. How do you feel about these numbers? Uh, well, I, I think I, I can't even begin to really comment on, on the, the numbers, per se. Uh, but I think it's safe to say that there's a, a very small amount of, of exudate, or leaky roots, so to speak, that the roots are leaking out chemicals and nutrients and enzymes from from their roots, mostly carbon sloughs off basically from the root, but but maybe a little bit of nitrogen. Although plants plants hold on to their nitrogen and and the nutrients that they really need to to make more of themselves pretty pretty heavily. Definitely denitrification or loss of nitrogen to the atmosphere does occur. I, I don't know how much. Sixty percent sounds kind of high to me. That would be something I'd want to. To look up a little more. I don't. I just don't. Haven't done those kind of measurements myself, so I don't. I don't have a good sense of them. What I have done a lot of measurement on and looked at other people's research on is uh, something that that did surprise me because I did see Fukuoka system work. I, I have some ideas of why it worked a little bit more now, but in my own studies where we were doing no-till legume rows, red clover rows and white clover rows in between crops where we either did no-till, which was not very effective, I should add, and where we did very minimum till in the crop row, we looked at how the nitrogen was made available to the soil and hence to the crop. And I had some surprises over the six years that we did that. We looked at 
clover that was left just growing, as in a pasture, a full stand of clover. We looked at clover that was mowed. We looked at clover that was lightly tilled, just gone over but not killed. And we looked at clover that was entirely tilled in. And we found that the quickest release of nitrogen to the soil was what we tr have traditionally been told. If you till clover in, you get a release of nitrogen within about two to four weeks into the soil. We found that light tillage, uh, we also saw a, a pretty good release of nitrogen. And because we didn't kill the clover back entirely, we saw a longer release of nitrogen over the season. What was surprising to me is that what we found about mowing was that the release of nitrogen to the soil was much lower than we had thought. Um, sometimes we wouldn't see it till the end of the season, you know, two, three months later. And this was the most surprising. We found that it, when we mowed clover and compared it to the clover that was unmowed within the first two weeks, we had less nitrogen in the clover that we mowed as opposed to the clover that we just left. But we also found that if the clover was just growing and not being mowed and not being walked on and not being disturbed in any way, that when our main crops were growing, July, August, and September, we were getting absolutely no nitrogen release at all. That the, the clover in between the rows gave us no nitrogen at all. So we didn't get any nitrogen until the next season from those plants. So that surprised me based on what I saw in Fukuoka system and what I saw when we were growing in, in Georgia. And I think the difference there is that we were disturbing the clover somewhat with our, our, our mulching, with our walking on it, with our cutting it down when we cut the crop, and that it was a, a constant addition of residues, and that it was time. That over time, you got nitrogen buildup. So the, the richness in Fukuoka soil and in our soil in Georgia wasn't happening within a season. We were putting deposits in the bank every year. So we'd put a little clover deposit in two years before, and we might be seeing it two years later. And then we just kept putting in a deposit, let's say, every two months. But that deposit wasn't necessarily something that we could withdraw immediately, but we could withdraw what had been put in a year ago, or two years ago, or three years ago. So the key was a constant addition of residue. And when you try to move into that system, you have a gap period. You have a year, or maybe two years, and Fukuoka definitely had this, where you don't have very good yields. But you build up a really big <coughs> bank account, and it's the bank account that you draw on, but it's a myth to think that if you have this legume right now, <laughs> it's going to give you soil or give you nitrogen, improve your soil right now. It's this constant addition over time, which I guess is what makes us these more highly evolved people is this patience that you develop through this kind of system because we all want it now. <laughs>
Well, now this, this also comes back to a big part of what, what I mean, because now we're getting back to uh, till versus no till versus minimum till, which we're not going to talk about today. Absolutely. <laughs> and because you want to come back to that, but you brought up so many things from our discussion earlier where I was trying to make the point of um, that, that all plants do exude nitrogen, just tiny amounts. Very and, tiny amount, and and and, and then and then uh, and then a legume is going to um, uh, exude far more than a non-legume, uh, you know, or or something that's not a nitrogen fixer. But but you know that's a discussion that we're going to not have. Okay, <laughs> because some of that I'm not I'm I'm not actually sure of. Okay, and and so there I think I think that is a very rich rich discussion. Yeah. I I and I want to I want to kind of focus on on Fukuoka's thing. Um, I want to take a quick look here. That we've only got five minutes left. Okay. But um, I I, I kind of think that the important thing is is that his soil does get better year after year. And yes, he has been at it for a long time. And and I and I and I do want to confirm with Larry, and I, I believe I did when I saw him like a week ago, mm -hmm. that um, uh, that his rice production was in the top 5%. When you look at per acre, I mean, mm -hmm. like, he only had, like, 11 acres for rice right, production. Right, right. So, um, uh, but when you look at the per acre mm -hmm. stuff, he was in the top 5% for production for just rice. And and um, to me, that's, that's I mean, that's that's, that's huge. That's that is massive. huge. And, and, uh, uh, and he never tilled. And, um, and we, and you and I were talking a little bit earlier about, um, we were talking about, like, well, where does this nitrogen come from? And so we talked about, well, he used to let his chickens roam out there, so the chickens would poop out there. And then, of course, there's, like, birds and insects and stuff like that that come through there, and they all poop on it. And then, um, I don't know, there might be a, a couple of other sources, but, but really, um, uh, we both agree that the big contributor is, is the... Um, clover. Clover. Yeah. And, and that... Uh, um, and it's not being tilled in, um, and it's it's not being mowed, but it is being stressed, mm -hmm. and and so um, uh, and then we and I said I came up with a number because I like I like pulling up numbers and trying to you know quantify things, and and so I I was estimating that 92% of the nitrogen that he adds to his soil every year comes from clover. Um, comes from comes from whatever legumes might be growing because he's not you know when we talk about polycultures too in this system in a way it's kind of not a polyculture in that it's only got two things at any given time it's got clover and a grain growing there but it's also probably have a, a lot of other plants that have survived the the, the the two weeks of water yeah and and so that's what does make it a polyculture I mean it, basically it's the it's the clover and the grain that's being encouraged mm -hmm. it's the grain that's being reseeded all the time the clover doesn't need to be reseeded um, and and then of course the barley is being reseeded mm -hmm. but outside of that there's probably just you know probably uh, hundreds of species of different little things growing out there along with it all that he's not bothering to try and kill. He's not he's not too concerned about it. Right. There might be a couple of things that he'll notice some eight foot tall thistle growing out there and he might go and take that out. I, I'm guessing. <laughs> you know, or, or something really obnoxious and obvious. But I imagine he spends almost no time dealing with uh any, any No weeding. Yeah, yeah, no weeding really. Uh I, I would imagine if an eight foot tall thistle, bull thistle, grew up in the middle of his 
he'd probably take that out. I would imagine. We never had any. Okay. All right. So um, I'm going with the number of 92%. How do you feel about 92%? I, I think that the amount of nitrogen added each year was probably not a high amount. But because you weren't tilling, you weren't losing the skeletal framework, the the organic matter in the soil. So you had everything that went into the bank, most of it stayed there because you weren't you weren't disturbing the soil by tillage. So when you think about it, the only nitrogen that came off was that little bit of nitrogen in the form of protein in the grain seed, but everything else went back. The straw went back, all of the rest of the crop went back. So you weren't taking off as much, and because you're not tilling, you're not losing as much nitrogen in, in the form of organic matter from the soil. So I think that you had a buildup over time, but every year you weren't getting much nitrogen. So I'm thinking that most of the nitrogen did come from the clover, although certainly some came from the chicken manure, but that it wasn't a very big amount every year. It's just that you didn't lose as much. The system was somehow designed that you had less loss of nitrogen to the atmosphere and very little breaking down of the organic matter because just like a, a native prairie system that was really rich in, in, and high in soil organic matter, you weren't disturbing it. So now this is an excellent point, and it's a good time to bring it up, and that is, uh, and we were talking about this earlier, how much nitrogen and how much organic matter is lost each time you till your soil? Well, when we did the R studies looking at a 50-year-old pasture and we tilled it and left a, a big block as our control to see what happened if you didn't till it, and then we planted our, our legumes so that we could do our no-till experiments. When we looked at the tilled pasture versus the, the pasture that was undisturbed, we saw within two weeks a 25% decrease in soil organic matter and a corresponding increase in soil nitrogen levels. But now the, you, that, that's one of the perks of till, is that you get this immediate yeah. you know, sugar rush. That's of, why we do it. Yeah. <laughs> all this good stuff. But of course, once you get all that good stuff, it has to come from somewhere. Right. And now it ain't there anymore. It's like you, you cleaned out your bank account. Right. You, 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 you took your, uh, right, yeah. And, and so, um, all right, yeah, 25, 25%. Now, I've always heard um, 30, uh, a third, like mm -hmm. you lose a third of your organic matter every time you uh, till the soil. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, um, a lot of the nitrogen that's in the soil is going to get released into the atmosphere. Um, but then a lot of it's still going to be, uh, is going to stay in the soil and be more available so it's possible that um, if you had, uh, I'm going to go back to saying 100 units, if you have 100 units of nitrogen in your soil and then you till, that um, you might lose uh, a third of it to the atmosphere and then you might you know, use up a third of it right away and then a third will remain in, in the soil. And then if you till again that year, it, it'll happen again. Um, so, I agree. I, I think... And in fact, everyone thinks organic no-till is one of the hottest research topics 
in the United States right now, perhaps in the world, but definitely in the United States, we're all trying to figure out how to do it. And, and the key is to figure out how to balance the competition between the ground cover that you leave on the soil permanently and the crop that you're trying to get a yield from. It's managing those interrelationships, and that's why I think Fukuoka's system is so elegant that somehow he figured out how to manage all of those interrelationships so that he had a good crop yield and still was able to do no-till and keep the soil covered. There are people that are getting some results with modified systems now. Rodale Institute is doing some really interesting no-till grain work. But nobody has been able to figure out how to mimic Fukuoka's system and get the yields that he got in this country with that kind of success. They're not observing nature enough. I think that's it. Absolutely. So now um, uh, you have a brand new website. And so do you want to tell us how to find your website and then what we would find if we went out there? Absolutely. The website is called veganicpermaculture.com. Veganic is a V as opposed to organic. It's veganic, and permaculture, of course, everybody knows how to spell. Veganicpermaculture.com basically talks about my path from organic agriculture to why I am trying to develop this veganic forest garden permaculture and uh, and goes through all of the research studies that we've done and all of the things that have worked really well and the things that haven't worked well at all. And there are some uh, examples of forest garden successes and forest garden what we call lessons things that uh, maybe we could have done better, but we sure learned a lot about. So uh, basically, it's uh, everything that I've done the last 30 years, and uh, particularly the last uh, 10, 10 years, and uh, hoping that other people will learn from my failures and successes. Now, I think the cool thing is, is that a year ago, if you'd have set up this website, then you probably wouldn't have used the word permaculture in your domain name. I probably wouldn't have. I probably wouldn't have used the word veganic either. So, um, uh, wow, it's been a, a huge year of growth it uh, has. for you. I, so uh, you've, you've, it seems to me like you've always kind of had it together. I mean, when I first took the Master Gardener course from you 15 years ago, I kind of thought, you know, man, that was uh, – well, anyway, so it's, it's, just, it's just fun to hear that, uh, that, that you're, you're still moving way forward and, and, and that you're moving forward in a space that – I got to first. <laughs> you did, and and finally I'm coming back to uh, the things that Fukuoka was saying and that I could have paid more attention to when I was 20. So it only took me 30 years, and I guess that <laughs> that's not uh, not too bad. All right, so um, you've mentioned your website, and, and this is the part where I'm going to do my closing thing, and, and I know on my video you like... <laughs> So, so you, you want me to say <laughs> veganic permaculture again? <laughs> no, I want you to sit there and be quiet while I do my closing thing. I'll try and do that. <laughs> yeah, okay, we'll see how that goes. All right, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about uh, organic practices, homesteading, and permaculture. And all, veganic permaculture. Uh, <laughs> all the time. <laughs>